Great. Thanks, Brian. Um, ooh, some feedback there. <laughs> All right. Are you ready for this? Yeah. Really? Okay. I was expecting a no or some silence or something. I'm not really feeling ready. Um, I've done a lot of prep, but still, this, this is a, a difficult one. You can, you can see by my sweat stains underneath my armpits that I'm feeling a little bit extra nervous about this one, but I'm, I'm still very excited. So hopefully that doesn't distract, distract you from the rest of the morning. You're welcome. <laughs> You're welcome. All right. Well, I recognize that this is almost an impossible task, um, depending on what we're hoping to get out of this. My hope and my goal is not to get everybody to agree with me. Um, if that were my goal, I would fail miserably because I know that there's a lot of different people in this room, a lot of different people that are going to be listening online that have a lot of different experiences, viewpoints, um, circumstances that affect the way we think about things. And so, first and foremost, I want to recognize that and know that, that it doesn't really matter what I say, I'm going to be stepping on someone's toes. <clears throat> Some of you may think that I'm watering this down too much. Some of you may think I'm being way too harsh and too judgmental. And, and honestly, that's okay, because the goal for this is to really be a conversation starter. Um, and I'm okay with the fact if you disagree with me, that's okay. Because we really need, and we recognize this as a church, we really need to have open and honest conversations about difficult topics, especially this one. We need to be talking about this as a church. So I really encourage you to take notes, write down questions. Um, let this be the beginning of this conversation for you. If you have questions and, and want to speak to me directly afterwards, please do so. I would love to have a deeper conversation. I can, I mean, I'm only afforded, Mark's, Mark got two hours last week, right? So I'm giving myself three. Um, <laughs> and I'm not going to cover a lot. There's a lot that I'm not going to be able to cover. So I recognize that and I'm still going to try to give you plenty of, of good content and good thoughts for reflection as well. So take notes, write down questions, and continue to engage this after this week. So my goal for this morning, like I said, there's a lot of different people in this room. Uh, my goal is to, it's, it's it's multifaceted. My goal is that we would come away a little bit more educated on the topic, especially as Christians. We need to understand. We need to understand what we're talking about. So I want us to come away better, better educated on the topic. I want us to know a little bit more of what the Bible says, um, the biblical perspective. And beyond that, um, my ultimate goal is that hopefully we would all come away this morning knowing how to love people better and feeling a greater sensitivity toward that. And that goes for everybody, Christians, non-Christians, wherever you're at in your faith, that is my ultimate goal. So before I, I jump into anything, I want to wake us up a little bit. Barna, I don't know if you've ever heard of Barna, they do a lot of religious studies and, and surveys and statistics and th things like that. They conducted a survey a little while ago. They specifically asked non-church-going millennials, that's my generation, what is the first thing that you think of when you think about Christians? And the overwhelming majority, 91% of these people said anti-gay. Anti. It's the first thing that they thought. And that's not okay. That, that just should scream to us as Christians, as the church. I mean, granted, this may not be you personally, but as the church, globally, we've largely failed at representing Jesus. Because Jesus is not anti a people group at all. This is an ugly word. And this is what people tend to think of us. Instead of thinking, 
wow, these, those are people that put others' needs before themselves. These are people that love unconditional. These are, these, these are people that, that stick up for what they believe in no matter, you know, nothing positive. It was anti a people group. And that's one of the biggest reasons why we're addressing this today is because we as the church need to be doing a better job of how we interact with this issue. So this is what I'm going to do. Um, I mentioned this earlier. Um, we're going to spend some time trying to understand because we need to understand what we're speaking to. Otherwise, our words could be hurtful. Or at the very least, they're just not going to mean anything if we don't understand what we're speaking to. Then we're going to go into the blueprint, if you will, what the biblical perspective is, 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 is I will present that. Um, and then finally, we'll talk about how do we engage people in our culture with this information? How do, we, how do we engage? How do we relate? What do we do with all of this? It's specifically, as Brian mentioned, how do we do that in love? How do we honestly, truly love people when the Bible seems to paint such a negative picture toward this people group? Seems. I'm going to say that. Well, that's the most important question, right? Is, is how do we love? Because Jesus himself gives us the greatest commandment is what we, we call it. The greatest commandment. Matthew twenty two thirty six 36 through 40 says this. So Jesus responds to this man who says, teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus replied, says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. What I love about this passage is Jesus could have stopped there. That would have satisfied all the Jews who were listening in that moment. He could have stopped there, but he continues willfully, and he says, and the second is like it. What he means is the second goes with it. You can't separate it. It says, love your neighbor as yourself. All of the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. So this is extremely important. We call this the greatest commandment, ultimately, to love God and to love people. So that's going to be our goal. And to truly love people means we listen to their stories. We listen before we speak. That's something we have to do. So we're going to start, I'm going to jump right into it because we need to understand better what same-sex attraction is. We need to understand people's stories better. We need to understand how our culture thinks about it more often and, and in order to fully address it. So first and foremost, in an effort to understand, we need to understand that we're not addressing an issue. We're addressing people. Right? This is not just an issue that's, that's benign and out there in, in the, the world of metaphysics or things like that. Like, this is people. We're talking about people here. People with real stories, with real experiences that have real hurts and pains, real struggles. Furthermore, we're not talking about people out there, out there, whatever that means. We're talking about people in our midst, too. Brothers and sisters in Christ, because statistically speaking, there are tons and tons of Christians throughout the world that, that experience same-sex attraction. So this isn't just a them issue. This isn't us first them. This is an us issue. How do we interact with this with God's word? So that's the bottom line is we're talking about people and that's what matters to God. And I want to give you a little bit of insight into this. There's a popular statistic out there that roughly one in 10 people are gay. It's a popular statistic. That's a, that's a wildly oversimplification. Um, I, I did some digging into this a little bit just to understand a little bit better. Um, and even though it's oversimplified, it still should cause us to pause because really it's probably more accurate to say that one in 10 people have had some same-sex experience in their life. So 
what really goes into the statistic is even people that may have had one instance in college or something like that, they fit into the statistic. But still, we're talking millions and millions and millions of people that matter to God, that are created in the image of God, whom Jesus loves more than we could possibly imagine. So that's who we're talking about. That's who we're talking and addressing this morning is, is a human issue. We're talking about people, not just an issue. Second of all, and this is a big one, this, is, this can be really hard for some of us to wrap our minds around, but second, we need to understand that, that sexuality really does exist on a spectrum. There's a spectrum of sexuality, and you know, this is a word that, that the younger generations love. We love our spectrums. We have a spectrum for everything, and some of you in the older generations may be triggered right now. But to use another great word... But I think that this is a biblical way of understanding this, that sexuality exists on a spectrum. And let me explain this a little bit. So I'll throw a, a picture up on here of a spectrum. There's a spectrum. So I don't know if you know this, but the terms that we have used and that we've been conditioned with, heterosexuality and homosexuality, those two terms were not used to describe someone's orientation until about 150 years ago. That's really recent in the course of human history. And ever since then, we've been very quick to understand people into two different categories. We try to lump people in. Well, are you straight or are you gay? It's not simple like that, okay? There's a spectrum. So if you can imagine, and, and there's no science behind this at all, but this is, hopefully it will be a helpful visual for you. Let's just say on the far left, we have someone who has had exclusively opposite sex attractions and has lived a heteronormative life. Those are some big words, but ultimately we're talking about people who are, you know, you look at them and their lifestyle, what they've chosen, and you would just essentially label them straight, right? Let's say that's on the far left. And let's say on the far right, we have someone who has had exclusively same-sex attractions and has fully embraced that into their lifestyle and they've, they've maybe fully committed into a same-sex relationship, okay? We could pick different examples, right? But if you just take those two, we have in this spectrum millions of different stories, millions of different sets of circumstances that people have gone through and have chosen. So for example, what do you do with someone who has um, lived a heteronormative lifestyle, who has married someone of the opposite sex, who has a family, who has kids, but has periodically throughout their lifetime has felt some sense of same-sex attraction, and they've never said anything, they've never acted on it. Where do you put them on the spectrum? You see, it doesn't work. It breaks apart. You can't just label someone straight or gay. And again, another example, what, what do you do with someone who has experienced exclusive same-sex attraction, but maybe out of their love for God and for, for what God desires for them in Scripture, they've chosen a life of celibacy. Where do they fit on this spectrum? It's not easy. It's not black and white. There's a lot of room, and we have to understand that, that people's stories matter. There's a lot of diversity in this. So in order to continue, I want to make sure that we also make a distinction between same-sex attraction and same-sex behavior. Um, we've intentionally um, been using this term same-sex attraction because of this distinction. The term homosexuality has become really difficult and it has actually become pretty offensive. So we want to stay away from that as Christians in order to love. But this makes a lot more sense too. Same-sex attraction we can define it as a pattern of emotional, romantic, and or sexual attractions to someone of the same sex, right? 
And it's important to understand that this isn't chosen. This is simply felt. We don't, we don't choose our attractions. They just happen, right? And honestly, in the world that we live in, I honestly don't know of someone who would, who would choose to feel those attractions, knowing all the hardship that would naturally come their way in the society that we live in. But on the flip side, we have same-sex behavior, which refers to acting on one's same-sex attraction, pursuing sexual conduct with someone of the same sex. And unlike attraction, this is a choice. Our behavior is always a choice. You know, I'm not forced to act on any of my desires. I choose to. So it's really important that we, we distinguish between these, same-sex attraction and same-sex behavior. Because, and I think this is really important, if you experience same-sex attraction, and I may be talking to someone in this room who's experienced this, or who does experience this, you are not in sin. You're not in sin. And as Christians, we should never condemn someone for experiencing same-sex attraction. The Bible does not ever condemn that. You're not in sin, if that's the case. Behavior, on the other hand, that's a choice. And that's what we're going to get into because the Bible does speak to that. But you can be a Christian. You can be righteous. You can be a, a, a God-fearing person and, and live according to the Bible and still experience same-sex attraction. That, there's, there's no reason why you can't. I mean, for example, think of AA, Alcoholics Anonymous. Some of you might be annoyed that I'm using this as a comparison. But for people that are going through recovery in AA, they're taught to accept their alcoholism, right? They could be 30 years sober and they would still see themselves as an alcoholic because of the, the bent that they would have, because of the temptations, because they know that if, if they're in a situation, those, those temptations, those desires could come back again. So I think that's, that's a, an apt comparison, something that we can look at and say, look, just especially as Christians, we have to avoid condemning people or looking down on people for what they are attracted to. That's not biblical. And third, this is where I hope all of us are listening because this involves all of us. The reality is that everyone's sexuality is broken by sin. If we take this book seriously, the whole thing, we have to understand the doctrine of sin we, we look around the world, we know the world is broken, right? I don't need to convince you of that. The world is broken. The world is full of hatred, of evil, of strife, of division. Well, that has broken our sexuality. Going back from the fall, everything is affected to one end or another by sin. And so every single one of us, our sexuality is broken by that, whether we're same-sex attracted or not. We all possess a heart of pride that is inclined to turn away from God, period. And Jesus says it this way, Matthew 5, 27 through 28. He said, now you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. And his hearers are all like, oh yeah, duh, Jesus, we already know that. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Jesus raises the bar. And that should cause us all to look at our own lives and say, we are all guilty of sexual immorality. All of us. We are all sexually bro broken. We are all born into sin. David Platt, who wrote this book, Counterculture, that Brian and I and a few others have been reading um, 
He has a phenomenal quote that says this. He says, we are all personally, biologically, culturally, and spiritually predisposed toward sexual sin, all of us. Some of us are simply predisposed in ways that are more culturally acceptable. In the end, every single one of us is a sexual sinner, and that means every single one of us is desperate for a savior. So that should cause us to pause and realize that this is, again, not an us and us versus them issue. This, this is an all of us issue. Has anybody seen the movie Bird Box? The new movie Bird Box on Netflix? Have you, have you heard, you've probably, if you've seen it, you've probably heard that there's a new thing called the Bird Box Challenge. Uh, check this out, get a glimpse of what this looks like. stupid, right? <laughs> yeah, let's just blindfold ourselves and try to drive. I mean, there's a scene in the movie where they do that, but still, why would you try that in real life? It makes no sense. Well, uh, you know, for those of you who may feel like you're bad parents at times or have had parent fails, uh, take a look at this as well. This is um, my son attempting the same challenge. <laughs> he has not seen the movie, but he gets, he gets why it's fun. He, he legitimately would not let us take this laundry hamper off of his head. He made us put it back on, he walked around, he fell a bunch and thought it was hilarious, but you know, we, we let him do it. Walking around, <laughs> walking around blindfolded is, is not very smart, right? And before we transition to the next topic or the next aspect of my message, I wanna make sure that we understand that, that we can do the same thing in life. If, I believe firmly that if we go throughout life without scripture as our guide, it's kind of like walking through life blindfolded. And hear me when I say this too, because I think this, I mean, what I mean is all of scripture, this whole book. So as we address some, some passages that could and have been used to hurt people in the past, we need to remember that Jesus said a lot about love. And this is one of my favorite passages of, of his that he says is, is John 13, 35. He says, by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. So I'm, I'm flipping it and saying, if we ignore things like this, then we're gonna be walking through life blindfolded. At the very least, we're gonna crash. At, at the worst, we're gonna hurt people and damage people. We have to remember that Jesus looked at his disciples and said, you're gonna be known by your love, not by how right you are not by how well you can talk about scripture. You're gonna be known by your love. So we're gonna jump into what I believe to be the biblical perspective on same-sex attraction. And when I say I believe this, I'm saying that, that we've done everything we can to make sure that we're on the same page as a church staff and eldership, that, that we've come across this together. We, we've strived to take the Bible seriously. I will say that there are other biblical perspectives out there um, meaning that people have used the Bible to say different things. But I'm going to argue that this is what, what we believe to be what the Bible says. And we need to take that seriously if this is God's word for us. 
So we're going to jump in and start with Scripture's prohibitive passages. And this is a, it's a technical term. Prohibitive passage means simply something in the Bible that says, do not do this. And so when it comes to same-sex behavior specifically, there's really six passages. Here's a list. Genesis 19, 1 through 9. Leviticus 18, 22. Leviticus 20, 13. Romans 1, 18 through 32. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. And 1 Timothy 1, 8 through 10. So I encourage you all to write this down, take a picture of it or something, and, and go and look into these passages. I, you, you may notice I put an asterisk next to the one in Genesis because I honestly believe that it doesn't belong on this list. Um, you can read that and figure out why yourself, but I don't think it's applicable for at least the way our culture understands same-sex attraction and behavior. Um, but I really encourage you to look into each of these passages a little bit more in depth because I don't know if you thought about this, but the LGBTQ community knows these passages better than Christians do. They do. Why? Because they've been used as weapons against them for a very long time, which is problematic. So we need to know them, not, obviously not to use them as weapons, but we need to know them to understand, first and foremost, what we, what we actually believe, what, this, what our book says, what God's word says. But we also need to understand how should we use these in a way that is faithful to all of scripture, right? To love people as God loves them. So there's a book that I've read. I read it a while ago when we covered this with our students. It's called uh, People to Be Loved by Preston Sprinkle. I highly encourage you, if you want to go more in depth with these passages, take a look at this book. He goes well, way in depth in each one, almost to a seminary level. It's really good, really good. And of course, you can see by the title, his emphasis is still, how do we love these people? Because they are people made in the image of God to be loved. So that is a phenomenal resource for you if you want to do some deeper digging. But for our time constraints this morning, we're only going to talk about one of these and that's Romans 1. We're going to be looking at the passage in Romans 1. So if you have your Bibles with you, I'd encourage you to, to turn there. If you don't have a Bible with you, we've got some underneath your seats, um, or you can always pull out your phone, but we really encourage you, especially with this series, to, to pull out a paper Bible and wrestle with it, write notes, and, and try to get out of the, the consumer mindset of, I'm just going to listen and receive what you have to give me. Wrestle with this. Take this onus upon yourselves as well to figure out what you believe about all of this. So we're going to start in verse 18, Romans 1, 18 through 32. I'm not going to have it on the screen as well. It's a long passage. So, so again, encourage you to, to read along with me in your Bibles. I'm going to be reading from the NIV translation. I know there's other translations, but um, that's the one that's underneath your seats as well. So this is the Apostle Paul speaking to this church in Rome. And starting in verse 18, he says... The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that men are without excuse." For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God or gave thanks to him. But their thinking became futile, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another." 
They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. Let's pause there for one moment. There's a lot here, and this is pretty negative passage, right? I want us to know, first and foremost, Paul is kind of talking about general humanity here, okay? He's not pointing out and saying those people. He's talking about people in general, humanity in general. If we know from the beginning, from the fall, we've always known that humanity has, since the beginning, since the fall, has been predisposed to move away from God, right? To go their own way. So that's what he's talking about here and says, in the process of doing that, these unrighteous people, these people have been chosen to reject God. I mean, a whole flurry of things happens. Um, they reject God and his authority and ultimately they become fools. They think that they're becoming wise, but they become fools. Their hearts are darkened. And that's what sin does to it, to us. It, it darkens our minds. It convinces us that things are okay. If you've ever justified a sin, it just becomes easier to keep justifying it. And when you justify it enough and enough and enough, you, you come to believe that it's fine and there's nothing wrong with it. So that's what he's talking about. This is, this is a trend for all of humanity, right? And part of that is he, um, he, he says straight up that he says, okay. He, he, I mean, the, the words are he turns humanity over to their to their way of doing things, their, their sinful desires, their, their mindset, and then things completely take off from there. Um, I think the best way to think about this is uh, the way C.S. Lewis said it. I quote him a lot, but I love him, and, and he really helps me to understand a lot of things. He says, there are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done, and those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. I think that's what God's doing here, right? When we reject God, God ultimately says, okay, have your way. There's consequences, but okay. And in the midst of this, we see that it's, I mean, he specifically singles out same-sex behavior, but he's talking before that about sexuality in general, right? Sexuality is broken completely. And one thing that I, I can't help but see in this as I read this is that um, Paul specifically says in verse 25, they worshiped created things rather than the creator. And I think about our culture. We, we honestly, as a culture in America, we worship ourselves. We worship the self. Whatever makes me feel good, whatever's enjoyable, that's what I should do because that's the greatest good, right? We're told things to f like, like follow your heart, find yourself, you know, do what's best for you, which seem really nice on the surface, but if you really dig deep into what human beings are like, that can cause a lot of problems, right? Just because I want and would love to walk into Guitar Center and just take three guitars off the shelf and walk out the door without paying for them. <laughs> I heard Mark saying, amen, good musician there. It doesn't mean it's good, right? There's limits to that. And in fact, the problem is, is that sin feels good, right? Sin is enjoyable. None of us would sin if it didn't 
feel good, if it wasn't fun, none of us would, right? So that, that argument in and of itself, there's, there's problems in it. So what, what has our culture done? We, well, we tack on one limiter and say, well, as long as it doesn't hurt anybody else, then it's okay. There's still problems with that. Especially, I mean, and I'm not going to go into all of them, but especially as Christians, what do we believe? What does this book tell us? It means that we're, we're created to serve God, not ourselves. Brian brought this up um, a couple weeks ago, this passage in Luke 9, 23. Jesus says this to the crowds. He says this to, to all these people. He says, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. Deny themselves. Take up an instrument of torture. So the essence of Christianity, what it means to follow Jesus, is not to get what we want. It's to lay down the things that that God has told us are not good for us, that do not bring him glory, and do everything we can to follow him and live into this new life that he has accomplished for us through the cross. That's the essence of what it means to follow Jesus. So especially when it comes to to us as Christians, if we want to follow Jesus, know that that just because something feels good, just because something's enjoyable, doesn't mean it's right at all. It could be, but that's not a good argument. Let's continue on in, in verse 28 of this passage. Paul says, Furthermore, since they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, he gave them over to a depraved mind. There's that theme again. To do what, not, what ought not to be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent new ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. Love how that's snuck in there, right? Basically on par with inventing new ways of doing evil. Don't disobey your parents. Ooh, okay. They are senseless, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. Again, it's a downer of a passage. I'm well aware of that. But we see this theme throughout Scripture is that ultimately, when we give in to sin, when we give in to this brokenness, ultimately it, it changes the way we think. It clouds our minds. It makes us think that that we are God and that we can do whatever we want. But what Paul is doing here, I want to make sure before we leave this passage, we take this in context of the rest of the book of Romans. Paul actually spends one through three, chapters one through three, convincing his readers that literally every single person on the face of the planet is sinful, has rejected God, and needs a savior. This is only part of it, right? He then goes on to the Jews specifically and tries to convince them that you are just as messed up as the rest of the world and you need a savior. So again, as we read this, this goes for all of us. We need a savior. We need truth. We need God to lead us into the life that he's created for us. So I wanna move on a little bit because I've pointed out that there are, I would argue, five prohibitive passages right? We just talked about one of them. That's not enough. I mean, some people would say, oh, well, there's only five passages in all of scripture. So obviously it's not that big of a deal to God. Okay. That's one, it's still God's word, but two, like there's, there's a lot more in scripture than just these prohibitive passages. So I want to shift a little bit and talk about a theology of marriage. 
Because especially as, marriage, as, as gay marriage has become legalized in our country, you know, it raises the question, what is marriage? And, and specifically, as Christians, what, is, what does God say about marriage? And that, that affects the way we understand same-sex attraction, same-sex behavior. So if we look at marriage, right from the get-go, Genesis 1.27, we're told that God creates humanity as male and female. That's how he's chosen to create us, and we are made in his image. In Genesis 2, he then takes on this, this long story of how he, he creates man and woman. You've probably heard it, right? There's a guy named Adam. God puts him to sleep, takes out a rib, uses it to make this woman Eve. And then in verse 23, I love this reaction. If you try to get into the story a little bit, Adam says, at last, this is now bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. Right? In other words, there's finally someone like me, right? I don't have to keep naming these stupid animals that can't carry a conversation. He's excited, right? There's someone like him. And immediately after that, we're told in verse 24, that is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife and they become one flesh. This is marriage. And there's a spiritual reality here. They become one flesh. And there's a mystery here. Paul quotes this in Ephesians 5, 31 through 32. He says, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. Word for word. He's, and then he speaks about it. He says, this is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ in the church. And we see theologically speaking about marriage, marriage isn't just for us. It's not just for society. It's not a man-made institution that we can just do what we want with. It's ordained by God and it ultimately serves a purpose to point us back to him and show us what love was meant to be. It shows us the love that Christ has for his church, for his bride. So there's a much deeper spiritual reality here beyond just a social institution. Jesus also quotes this and says in Matthew 19, four through six, Jesus is actually teaching on divorce, but you can't really talk about divorce without having a, a solid theology of marriage, right? So he says, haven't you read that at the beginning, the creator made them male and female? And he said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. He quotes it. He says, so they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. So by quoting this passage and speaking on it the way that Jesus did, Jesus affirms it. He lifts this up as this is what marriage was intended to be. This is how God created marriage. One man, one woman. There's a mystery. They literally become one flesh. It's a spiritual mystery. And it's meant to bring glory to God. And another thing I want to point out that we, we don't really think about very often, Genesis 1.28, I don't have it on the screen, but right after God creates man and woman and says that, that we were created in his image, he gives the first command to humanity. And he says, be fruitful and multiply. Increase in number. In other words, have sex and make babies. It's the first command that we got from God. Just kind of fun. And again, if we're thinking about our culture and trying to engage and wrestle with our culture, another thing that has happened is we've successfully, in many of our minds, separated sex, marriage, and procreation. We've separated those things as if they're different. They can relate to each other, but we've separated them. So for example, in our culture, there, we don't give a second thought to having sex outside of marriage, by and large, as a culture. 
But scripture, if we look at, you know, even just around those prohibitive passages, we see that God tr- treats any form of sex outside of marriage as being just as sinful. It's just the same weight is poured out towards those actions, right? So we've separated, we've tried to separate sex from marriage. And then beyond that, we've tried to separate marriage or sex from procreation because we have the technology, the modern medicine to be able to prevent pregnancy. And that's another topic for another day. But all I'm trying to point out is that we have, in our brains, fragmented those and brought them apart from each other. When in the very beginning, when God formed all this and established all this, procreation is meant to be a part of it all. Right? That's not the, I mean, there's a lot more there. But again, I just want to point that out because ultimately what we see is with all these things together, this is hard for our culture to hear. This is hard for me to say. But same-sex relationships cannot fulfill the biblical description of what marriage was supposed to be. It just can't. It's not able to. The last thing I want to point out, just because I think it's, it's worth bringing up, this is another thing, hard thing to say, but there isn't one instance in all of Scripture where God blesses a same-sex relationship. And I leave that to the end because that by itself isn't a good argument. It's called, called an argument from silence. Um, just because it doesn't say something doesn't mean it's wrong. But with everything else that we've talked about so far, I think that's another thing that, that we can look at and say, look, I mean, if we want to take Scripture seriously, we have to wrestle with this. So all this to say is that I believe that the biblical perspective, and we as a church, as we're coming at this, we believe that the biblical, the biblical perspective on same-sex attraction is, like I've said, there's no sin at all in experiencing those attractions whatsoever. There's no sin there. So please hear that from me. There's no condemnation or judgment there whatsoever. But same-sex behavior is not God's plan for us. It's not how he created us. And in fact, there is sin involved when that's practiced. So that's really difficult. This is hard. And I say this with a heavy heart because of the relationships that I have, because of the friendships that I have, because, you know, I think the more, that, the more work God has done in my heart, he's made me more sensitive to, to people. Like he has softened my heart. And so the more sensitive and loving I have strived to be toward all people, this becomes harder and harder to to say and to speak in love, right? So I hope that you, you hear conflict in me because there is conflict. This is a hard, hard truth, especially for those of you who may experience this, for those of you who have friends, who have family members, who have coworkers, who have peers that experience this or have, have you know, lived in a, a same-sex relationship. The hardest thing about this is that if we take God's word seriously, if we strive to follow this, this is a major loss for people. And I fully recognize that I cannot imagine, I cannot even begin to imagine hearing this. If I were someone who experienced same-sex attraction, you have to mourn that loss. And it's a major one, right? Similarly, similar to the extent when, when people are told that they can't have kids. It's a loss that needs to be mourned. 
And I'm reminded of another thing that Paul said, Romans 12, 15. He says, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. We as a church need to do a better job of weeping with those who are weeping, mourning with those who are mourning. Just being sad together. Because there are hard truths and hard realities that aren't comfortable, that aren't fun. At all. So I want to shift to this final section. What do we do now? What do we, what do we even do now? How do we engage culture with this, okay? Because... And, you may have experienced the same thing that I do. You know, one of my fears and one of my struggles as a Christian is, okay, if I believe this, if I take God's word seriously, then how in the world do I continue to love people when the world seems to be calling me a bigot, hateful, discriminatory, and even unethical, right? That's a fear of mine because I, you know, I don't think that of myself. But again, this is, it's difficult. So I'm gonna go through I'm going to give you six things, and they're, they're in no particular order necessarily. Um, I'm giving you a lot because I hope that maybe you'll resonate more with one or two of them in, in particular and, and feel like you have something to work on. But I'm going to give you six things to help us engage people and culture with this. The first one is something that, that Mark touched on last week when it came to racism. Don't buy into the pro and anti mentalities. Just don't buy into that. I think it's funny that as a world, especially my generation and and the younger generations, we love our spectrums, but we don't allow for a spectrum on a lot of political issues, right? When something becomes political, you have to say, are you for it or are you against it? And there's no middle ground, but that is a lie. That's, That's absolutely ridiculous. You know, culture effectively tells us when it comes to this issue that you can't be against same-sex marriage, and still be friends with people who engage in same-sex relationships, love them, have their best interests in mind, and advocate for them. Yeah, I can. I can absolutely do that. It's a lie to say that you have to be one or the other. Because, I mean, think about it. If we really break this down, our culture wants to tell us and force us to say, well, if you truly love someone, then you'll let them live into their truth and be who they are and do all this other stuff. You know, okay, I, I, I know what the popular voice is out there, but we essentially are being told that you have to agree with everything that someone says or does in order to truly love them. I have a son who's two years old. I do not agree with everything he does. I don't. Especially when, I mean... There's funny things, right? But there's stupid things. And, and like, sat, like, when he reaches out to the, the frying pan on the oven, I don't, ag- I don't agree with that. And I try to stop him, and he gets upset, right? It's okay. I, I love that kid to death. Manda loves me than more, than more than anyone else in this room, and she definitely doesn't agree with everything I do either, right? So again, this is, this is a false idea of understanding love. Love does not mean you, you put up with, I mean, it doesn't mean that you accept and condone everything that someone says or does. It doesn't. True love, I believe, strives to see the best come out in another person. Right? I think a love that, that just is completely fine where someone is and doesn't want to see them grow or mature or develop or come alive, I don't think that's real love. That's just being kind 
and nice to, so you can feel nice about yourself. And I can tell you first and foremost, this is God's disposition toward every one of us. God disagrees with a lot of the things that we think, say, and do. Yet he gave his son on the cross for us because he loves us that much. He wants to see us come alive. He wants, us to, see, he wants to see us be fully redeemed, rejuvenated, renewed. So don't buy into this, this two-camp mentality. There is absolutely room in the middle. We don't have to agree with, and this goes for everything, right? Not just this, this topic, but we don't have to agree in order to love. Second, know what you're talking about. We did this a little bit, seeking to understand. But before you speak, listen, learn, do research, and diligently read scripture, right? One of the reasons that I think Christians have created so much harm and caused so much damage is because we're so quick to speak on things that we have no idea what we're talking about. Legitimately. We either hurt people or our our words just don't carry any weight. So I gave you a few books already to think through. I'll, I'll put one up there again. People to be Loved by Preston Sprinkle. Again, this is, this is probably the favorite one, my favorite that I've read on this at all. Um, so I, I encourage you to read that one. Two more that I want to give you. Washed in Waiting by Wesley Hill and Torn by Justin Lee. And these two books are written by Christians who experience same-sex attraction. And I will tell you, first and foremost, these are very different people. Wesley Hill committed his life to celibacy, and he wrestles with that in this book. He talks about it. He's very open about it. Justin Lee, this book is phenomenal. It really is. At the end, he, he does emphasize and say that he, he has come to the belief that, that God can bless same-sex relationships. And I, I disagree with him on that. Just know that. But it's, it's okay and healthy to read things that we disagree with, right? But beyond that, man, with these two books, especially Torn, you get a window into what it's like to struggle with this especially those of you who have who've never experienced this, these are phenomenal books just to kind of start listening and get into the life and, and into the shoes of someone who's, who's wrestled with these things. So we need to know what we're talking about before we speak. Third, biblically speaking, we need to be advocates for people. We need to advocate for people, period. So have meaningful conversations with people. Ask them about their stories. Ask them about their lives, their circumstances, their hopes, their fears. Ask them about their struggles, what they're passionate about. Ask them about their concerns for the world. Get to know people for who they are. Treat them well with love because they're made in the image of God, just as you are. Stick up for them as people. That's what Jesus did. Jesus stuck up for the worst of sin. The people that, that society looked at and said, oh, you were the worst of the worst in society. Jesus stuck up for those people first without coming before them and saying, well, I just need you to know that, that I disagree with your lifestyle. He didn't do that. And as a side note with that, I, I think that it's important for us to realize this as Christians that, that that probably comes more from our fear than it does from a godly responsibility. Like you do not need to preface anything. When you're trying to build a relationship with someone, when you're trying to love someone, you don't have to preface anything with your viewpoints. We don't do that with anything else. We, we don't. I don't walk into someone's house who has a big house and lots of things and say, hey, just so you know, I really disagree with materialism. And so I just need you to know that before we can be friends. But I want to be your friend. That doesn't, <laughs> does not bode well for anyone, right? You don't need to do that. Fourth, it's the Holy Spirit's job to convict, not yours. 
Your job is to love people and to share the gospel, the good news of what Jesus has done for us on the cross and what he wants for us. Your job is not to convict. It's been different sins in the past too. It's been different things. It used to be divorce. There was a point in history where, where if you were divorced, you would be met at the front door of a church and had that same conversation, right? We've just changed it. It's not our job to convict. It's our job to love. I, I distinctly remember when I became a Christian and when I decided to follow Jesus. Um, I was in high school, and I didn't know what I was doing. <laughs> There's still so much I didn't understand, but I, I can tell you, if I had someone approach me who was trying to lead me to know Christ, right? And they said something along the lines, oh my gosh, it's so great that you want to know Jesus and you want to follow him, but I noticed that there's this little sin, that there's this sin in your life, big or small, I don't know. There's a sin in your life and like, it's good that you want to follow Jesus, but that has to change first or that needs to change. You know, if someone had had a conversation with me like that, that probably, and I, I mean, I don't know for sure, but that probably would have pushed me further away. I don't know if I would have made that final step to fully accept Christ. It wasn't until I was in a deeply committed, intimate relationship with Jesus that the Holy Spirit was able to convict me of the things in my life that needed to change. The relationship has to come first. It has to. And it's the Holy Spirit's job to do that in our lives. I mean, how can we love people and share the gospel when we're so busy telling them that they're sinners first? It doesn't work. Fifth, this is a very quick one. Stay off social media. Just please stay off social media. Nothing good ever comes from getting in an argument on social media, and I don't think I've ever seen an argument ever be won from behind a computer. If you're going to have conversations, do it looking at someone across the table from you. Look into their eyes, okay? Not blindly from behind a computer screen. And sixth, and this is the one I feel most passionate about today, is that we need to take Christian fellowship up a notch. We really do. Because again, taking the Bible seriously, we need to recognize that God created the church for a purpose. We're his body, we're his bride, we're God's family. And we know from, from the very beginning of time is that human beings were created for intimacy, were created for love, were created to be known. That's a human need, right? But who says that has to come through romance or sex? It doesn't. That's another thing. Our culture will tell us that sex is a need. It's not a need. You can survive. Jesus survived. Paul survived. Lots of people throughout history have survived and have found deep relational needs met in other people through spiritual friendship. Not to say that it's just as easy. It's harder. But, but again, this is what one thing that the church is created to do is to provide this for people. So... I'll say this as a plug now. This is why life groups are important. This is why we do life groups. It's not to be cute and say that we have more life groups and we want more people in life. Like, it's not just as a gimmick. Like, we believe and, and attempt and strive to treat life groups as a community where we can foster deeper relationships, deeper connections, where we can know each other well, support each other, pray for each other. The church needs to be a place where we can all come as we are, with all of who we are. Be wholly accepted, loved, cherished, and welcomed, where we can share the intimate details of our lives, our struggles, our hopes, our desires. 
where we can wrestle together, mourn together, rejoice together, prop each other up when we need a hand, and ultimately stir each other up to become more fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ. Right? That's why the church exists. So collectively, this is a big undertaking, but I think we, as Rock Creek, the church generally worldwide, we continually need to be taking Christian fellowship up a notch and fulfill what we were called to do and what we're called to be. And at the very least in that, then we can offer some answer and remedy for people who are struggling with loneliness, right? Especially people who experience same-sex attraction, right? The church needs to have an answer. We can't just tell them to, to, to stop doing something or to not do something. Like, that doesn't help anybody. So let's be the church that we're called to be. And as we finish our time in worship, this is a fun segue. As we finish our time in worship, let's come before the God who loves us unconditionally, who loves the world unconditionally, who is so good that even when everything around us seems to be going horribly wrong or there's so much evil in the world, that God is still good, that he loves, that he cares, that he cherishes, and he ultimately wants to make us new and redeem the world. So let's come before that God as we close in worship. Jesus, thank you so much for this day. Thank you that we get to talk about a really difficult topic that involves people. pray that you would grow us and strengthen us as the church to not only know what your word says and know truth, but more than anything, figure out how do we love people well? How do we share the good news with every single person? Because they need it. They're people to be loved. We are all in need of a savior. We are all in need of you. We're all broken. So we thank you for this morning and ask for your blessing on us as we go back into our worlds and figure out, how, okay, what are some things that we can change? What are some things we can proactively do to love others? So Jesus, we thank you and we offer up to you the rest of this day. Amen. Let's stand.